today, um, we're up to a section that's about money. So it should be fun, eh? Some of you going, is it too late to leave? <laughs> anyway, so if you've got your Bibles uh, on an app or in paper or whatever you want to read there, we're going we're gonna to be in Mark 12, starting at verse 35, uh, or you can read it on the screen. Um, let's let's uh, get into it. And, uh, and as Jesus taught in the temple. So just a quick note, uh, it, it looks like uh, the stories in Mark 12 are like Jesus in the temple. There's been people kind of having a crack at him. This one here is probably a little bit more like, like the last story, uh, it said, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. It almost looks like Jesus kind of loads his gun here and he says, well, I'm going to start asking you some questions. Um, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They'll receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Can you imagine this? It's about 13 kind of trumpet-shaped kind of cistern things in the temple that people put money in. Uh, it looked like there was a, a bench along the wall. What does Jesus do? He's almost kind of financial stalker and actually goes and sits down on a bench and he's watching what everyone puts in. Would you be uncomfortable? I can imagine if we did that. I mean, we, we kind of say at the project, we just kind of go, you give what God's put on your heart to give. But what happens if we actually sat, like we actually went with you around all the rows with a, with a notebook and quickly noted down all the money that you put in. Would you be uncomfortable? I mean, I, mean, I would be. <laughs> if I were you, you just go get out of my life right now. But here's Jesus. What he, he literally, intentionally, goes to sit down and to watch the amount of money that people put in. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came. Now, you've got to note that, right? We've got no... Social security, there's no widow's pension, there's no family tax benefit, there's no unemployment benefit, there's, there's none of this in this day. All right? She's a poor widow. She doesn't have a husband. Her main source of support is dead. She may have children, but we don't know. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, those coins were worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wage for a labourer. So I worked out if a labourer in our day earns 20 bucks an hour, she put in probably about $2.50. Now, what's critical that we're going to find out here is it wasn't just $2.50, it was her last $2.50. And he called his disciples to him and said to them truly i say to you this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all that she had to live on now you got to do some work now okay so if you can find someone who you can have a quick chat to i'm going to give you a few minutes you know what i want you to do it's like people go oh church is always on about money we're trying to get our money all right 
So today, I just want you to have a chat about it. Here's the question I want you to answer, and I'll ask for some volunteers to throw in their thoughts. What's the point of this story? So just read the text, right? I'll put it back up. Read the text, have a chat with someone, right? What's the point of it? Why has Mark put it in? What's Mark trying to tell you? All right? That's, that's really all I'm asking. And my, my plan here is this. I don't want to be the guy at the front that's telling you what you should be doing with money. But I'm going to do that because that's what the text is about today. All right? But my plan is like, you think about it and see if you can work out what the point of the story is. And then, hopefully, you'll get the point and then I can talk about it. Does that make sense? So, what is the point of the story? All good? So, I'll give you about three minutes. That's the story. Talk to the person next to you. Talk to your kids. Have a chat. And then... Um, Find someone to talk to. If there's someone sitting alone, project people, go and sit next to them and just say, what do you reckon the point is? And let's see if we can get a sense of why Mark has actually put this in the gospel at the end of Mark chapter 12. Three minutes, get into it. Okay. Who's up? What's the point of this story? Someone want to throw in? Sorry? Trust in what way? That's really good. Oh, that's, that's really profound because I actually think that trust is the fulcrum of, most, of just about all of our issues with money because money does things for us and it can support us, it can help us and when we hold on to it tightly, it's like I have to do this for me and I have to organise my life and resource my life to make sure my life goes the way I want which is kind of ends up being a competitive kind of trust to God. That's good. Who else? Yeah, yeah, I mean, wouldn't you love to just sit down with her for five minutes, you know, and just hear from her what, what she's like and just kind of go, well, why are you doing this? You know, I, I think that's, that's a good point. Someone said something similar in the first service. Uh, the, the interesting thing about that comment, and you're not saying this, right, but the interesting thing about that comment is saying that it's a hard attitude um, is kind of a, some, a cloak to hide, hide yourself in a bit because... Like what you see here is this, this lady comes and gives, like a lot of us would say things like, yeah, no, my heart's in the right place. If God asked me to give everything, I'd give everything. Or if God asked me to go to this country in the world and be a missionary, I'd go and do it. Now, there's no specific word to this woman from God to actually come and give everything. So she, she's just doing it, you know. And it does say something incredibly radical about her heart. That she's just coming and she's just giving freely without any compulsion, without any, you know, a lot of Christians would go, well, the Holy Spirit led me to give everything. And it's going, not with this lady. It doesn't look like it. It looks like she just loves God. And she trusts, you know, as Kelly said there before, she trusts God to provide for her, you know. And so she comes and she gives. Other comments?
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Nice to have that math teacher's contribution because it, it, there's, there's math in this, isn't it? Because the maths of the other people are we're giving numerically more, all right? The maths of Jesus, Jesus' maths, his formula is talk to me about percentages, isn't it? And he's kind of going, no, this, this lady has given more. She gi- she's given the greatest percentage. And it says something about who she is. Who else? Next meal. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? You know, I mean, I like the way that you put that because, it, see, we're not talking about intention. The intention is in there, but we're actually talking about action. We're actually talking, we're looking at a story of what someone actually did. And Mark thinks it's worth putting in the Bible, basically. <laughs> Even though. He, you know, the Bible wasn't complete at that time. Other, other thoughts? First thing I was thinking of to give context to the story is it would have been a bit of a head kick to the people because they probably knew that Jesus was working as well. So they're, they're probably like, look, I'm probably the best. Look at my uh, yeah. arm. And then uh, at the end of it, like, no, I don't uh, know what to do with that. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean... One of the ways that I'm not I'm not bagging anyone. Look, one of the ways that, uh, and I'm not bagging anyone, but one of the ways that churches sell this whole deal is like give to God, He'll give back more to you. Like, let's just be honest. That, has anyone heard that? Like, that's that's what they talk about, right? Now, it's not in this text. <laughs> it's probably more like what Matt was saying up the back there. Give to God, and you may not eat your next meal. Maybe. Now you, might, you might want to say, well, God's always going to provide your needs. Yeah, you do. But Paul talked about being hungry and shipwrecked. and Do you know what I mean? Uh, the needs that we have are often different to what our true needs are. Anyway, let's, um, this is where we're going today. This widow is a generous lady. She's an unknown lady. She was a noticed lady and she's a great lady. Let's have a look at the, uh, the first section here. You can see, and this is what we've just been talking about. She put in all that she had to live on. She gave 100% money. And I, I said to someone at half time today, um, I just don't know how anyone can, in the West could actually read a story like this and feel comfortable. You know? And I'm not saying that in a bag. I'm just saying, I just don't know how you can do it. You know? Like, seriously, she could have kept the dollar twenty-five. It's like 50%. Like, we would go, 50% is good. Go 50. You know? But no, what's she doing? She's going the full tilt. She's actually going 100%. I want you to stop for a moment and think about this lady. I want you to think about what you 
How do you feel about this lady doing this? What, what do you think? Like, do you, do you feel sorry for her? Do you feel sorry for her? If you do, why, why do you feel sorry for her? Do you think she's sad when she's doing this? Or is she happy? Are you excited for her? I wonder if anyone's excited for her. Do you actually believe that she's putting herself in a place of blessing? What do you think her attitude is to giving? Are you sitting there thinking, that's not very good financial stewardship. Give away your last $2.50, you don't have lunch. You don't have dinner. And here's the truth, isn't it? That churches make a hash of money, don't they? They don't make hash out of it. They make a hash of money. They just mess it up. They get it wrong. And we've probably got it wrong. You know, here's the thing. I don't know whether you know this, but Jesus talked about money, and then he talked about more, sorry, he talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. He talked about money. And I hate talking about it. And I kind of think the best thing for us to do would be to spend a lot of our money to get a third world pastor to come in and speak about money. Because it's like, you've all heard me say it before. If you want to know what the wetness of water is like, you don't ask a fish, all right? Because that's all the fish knows. Consumerism, capitalism, that's all we know. Here's the challenge out of this story. And I wonder if you can see this. I was going to sleep last night and this just occurred to me. Money didn't own this lady. See that? It kind of owned the other people because they could be something with it and it owned them. But it didn't own this lady. She owned it. And more than she owned it, I think she realised that God owned it and that it wasn't hers. And I wonder, I wonder just at this point, I'll just throw out to you, I wonder whether money owns you. Now, I'm not saying this because we need money, right? I'm saying this because this is what Mark 12 is one of the things it's saying. Does it own you? Now, you don't have to be rich for money to own you. Do you? You can be poor and money can own you. You can talk about money, think about money, about wanting money, working out ways to get money, the way that you spend money. But it certainly, and you'll see this in a minute, the people who are rich, it can really own people who are rich. And you, most of you know, is anyone, anyone with me on this? I'll, I'll get your feedback. Have you ever been in that place where you just were just a, bit of, a little bit obsessive about money and then you decided... And God just was like a woodpecker on your forehead, right? And just kept going at you. And then you just went, all right, all right, I'll be generous. And then all of a sudden, this whole free life actually opened up, opens up to you. You see, there's probably a lot of us that are slaves to it. Are you one of them? See, for this lady, the size of the gift is not measured by the size of the gift, is it? The size of the gift is measured by the size of the percentage and the percentage that she gave showed that it did not own her. All right, I'm just going to bury a little bit more before I dig out. Are you okay with that? 
So I'll, we'll start with the Yanks, and we'll just get all judgmental about how bad the Yanks are at giving, and then we'll get to Australians and their generosity. All right, and here we go. This is Relevant Magazine. Um, says the, uh, there's an article from there, so they say the church of today is not great at giving. This isn't exactly news, but it's a statistical fact. Tithers, those who give 10% or more um, to their local church, make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. Only 5% of the US tithes, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. Listen to this. Christians are only giving at 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Depression they gave it a 3.3% rate. You get the point here. When people are poorer, they give more money. Like, hear that? When they're poorer, they give more money. Now, you won't see that borne out in the American stats, but I'm going to show you some Australian stats that actually demonstrate that, that poorer people are more generous. Okay? So it's, uh, it's a bit of a shot across the bow for, uh, for us. All right? Yeah, we'll define poorer people in a minute, but that's just an interesting thing to note. All right, this is from uh, ChristianityToday.com. I'm going to read through this article. Apologies, it's a bit small up the back there. Um, an examination of church attenders who regularly tithe reveals some interesting facts about their financial health. For the first time this year's State of the Plate report, that is a cool name for a report about giving, but anyway, State of the Plate, uh, they actually looked at five years' worth of data to examine the characteristics of tithers. We'll go down the next bit. Uh, as it turns out, they tend to fall on the more side. 77% of tithers reported giving between 11 and 20% of their income and 70% donated based on their gross income, not net after tax. The majority, 63%, started tithing 10% or more between childhood and their 20s. What is that telling your parents? It's telling you that you actually need to teach your children to be generous with their money when they're young because they tend to continue that level of generosity as they get older. Moreover, it appears that generous givers are better off financially than their non-tithing counterparts. Isn't that interesting? That, that's interesting. We could just stop there for a little bit. Nearly one in three Christian tithers reports being debt-free and the vast majority, 8 in 10, have no outstanding credit card bills compared to 13% and 60% of non-tithers respectively. Here's the thing. Some of you, to be generous, are going to need to actually make some major decisions about the way that you're going to use your money, like structural decisions. So don't put in a pool. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, like you put in a pool, what are you doing? Well, I've got to pay for an inspection every year. I've got to pay for a fence. I'm not saying it's a sin to put in a pool right and everyone who's got a pearl is sinning right but my point is people people make financial commitments that bind them up and stop them from being generous and you've got to make sure that you're making structural decisions that help you that actually free you up to be generous you get my point that's what i'm saying like don't make it's not like and if you've got a thousand dollar dog i hope it's really healthy and it lives a long time okay it's not wrong to have a thousand dollar dog but if you're making if you're making all these financial kind of decisions all the time and it just kind of jams you up, you're just going to get stuck and not be able to be generous. But it isn't the case that faithful tithers only give because they have excess income. Instead, the data show that tithers are distributed almost equally across all income brackets. Tithers also carry outsized importance in a congregation. This is a chilling statistic for me, for whatever reason. I'm not even going to tell you why, but it's just chilling. The study found that they comp comprise only 10 to 25% of the families in the church, but they often provide 50 to 80% of the funding. What does that mean? That actually means that 20% in America, 
20% of people in the church are contributing up to 80% of the finances in the church. Those yanks, so good that we're not like them. So let's go to the Australian survey. <laughs> so uh, at regular intervals, there's an Australian group that uh, I think they're a Catholic slash Anglican kind of survey group that actually do this survey of churches across Australia. It's called the National Church Life Survey. And the last information that I could find, the latest information about finances and giving in churches was um, in 2006. So they surveyed, surveyed about 33,000 people across Australia and came up with um, some statistics here. Here's, um, here's the first thing. Now, I'm not going to read all of this, right? This income demographic there, 50,000 to 59,000, is the turning point. Now, what, what's the turning point there? The turning point is that everything on the lower side is everyone who's on the lower side of $60,000 in 2006 is giving up, kind of on average, a greater percent of their income than the people on the right-hand side. So it's the same kind of thing that came out in the ChristianityToday.com uh, article, which is like the richer you get, the less you give, percentage-wise. And you can actually see that there. That's the richer people, and that's the poorer people and the percentage of them that are, that are actually tithing. Is everyone okay so far? Here's another one. Um, levels of financial giving. So in all of Australia... Only 19% of church attenders give 10% or more regularly. 80% give less. Now, this is probably the chilling one down the bottom here. If you look at this, about how much does your family or you, if you don't live in a family, give each week to support of this congregation, parish, its activities and staff? So you've got nil, one to $5. Notice there, 27% of people in churches in 2006 gave $5 or less a week to the church. Do you feel guilty? <laughs> I don't know what you give. I'm just asking. That's, I mean, is, like that's a quarter of the church pushing a third are giving less than five bucks a week. Now, that's telling you something about a quarter of the church. Now, you can decide what it's telling you. <laughs> I'm not going to say what that is. I don't, I'm not even 100% sure I can be precise about what that says, but it says something, doesn't it? Um, John, uh, John Dixon, he's a Sydney Anglican, evangelical Anglican guy, wrote this book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. I just want to read an excerpt out of it. Some figures from Australia, surely no more or less materialistic than other wealthy industrialised nations, bring clarity and focus to this discussion. The average Australian household spends $231 per year on all forms of charitable giving. Like, that's, that's Australia. $231 a year on charitable giving. That's less than half a percent, 0.4% of the average household income, or just 40 cents in every $100. The wealthier the household, listen, the worse the figure gets. Households in the upper 20% income range, households earning 130000 or more before taxes, spend on average 416 a year on charitable giving, that's just one third of a percent of household earnings of 32 cents in every hundred dollars. You see that? Like you can see the pattern there. It's like when you get more money, you give less money, percentage wise. 
On a weekly basis then, households spend on average just $4.44 on charitable giving in Australia. The average household spends more each week just on confectionery, quite a bit more on pets, more again on cigarettes, three and a half times more on beer and wine, and nearly 10 times more on restaurant and takeaway meals. Here's the deal, if you've bought a coffee this week, right, you've just spent more than the average Australian spends on charitable giving. Done. You've just done your charitable giving to Zarafas. Again, listen, these figures are worse among wealthier Australians. Now, I suspect readers of this book will be trying harder than the average Australian to be generous with their money. Most of my compatriots don't live with the parable of the Good Samaritan whispering in their ear. Nevertheless, these averages are telling and draw attention to spending patterns we, wherever we live, may never have considered. In the light of the biblical call to promote the gospel with our money, it is worth asking some practical questions. Would I spend as much on the work of evangelism as I would spend on my CD collection? Movie theatre tickets, sporting events and other weekend outings. Do the missionaries I know get as big a slice of my income as my local restaurants, takeaway joints or cafe? If not, why not? What possible reason could there be for not matching my expenditure on luxuries with expenditure on my partnership in the gospel? Ouch. Now, it's probably not a good reason <laughs> at that point. Here's how he finishes. It is fantastic that the Lord has blessed us with the resources to enjoy the pleasures of his creation. I'm simply pleading with readers to add to this enjoyment the enormous privilege of becoming more active in the financial implications of following the friend of sinners. Giving money as well as your time to evangelistic projects, people and organisations is full and praiseworthy partnership in the gospel. When you financially support the proclamation of the gospel, you're actively seeking to save the lost. John Piper wrote this about tithing, giving 10% or more. He said, My own conviction is that most middle and upper class Americans, and we could say Australians, who merely tithe, give 10% are robbing God. In a world where 10,000 people a day starve to death and many more than that are perishing in unbelief, the question is not what percentage must I give but how much, I dare, sorry, how much dare I spend on myself? How much of God's trust fund dare I use to surround myself with comforts? See, one of the things that I've kind of been trying to do in this section is giving you all the stats about America and Australia. It's like, well, what percent am I meant to give? <laughs> what am I meant to give here? How much is it, 10 should I start at 10? And I'd say to you, well, 10's probably a good start. But is that the recommendation that this widow was given? Just start with 10. You can work your way up from there. She's going, no, I'm actually going to give 100%. You see, what Mark's actually saying is that God has complete ownership of everything that you've got and you are a steward. And this lady has gone and given the money to God as a steward. I want to play you a clip from uh, John Piper. Now, just note about John Piper. You know, the interesting thing about John Piper is um, he, he actually has matched this. The stuff that he says about money is actually done. It's really important that you know that. I mean, I, I often joke about how he's only got two or three tweed jackets that you see him dressed in because that's all he's got. Um, in the last few years of him leading a really large church, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, he was only on 100 grand a year. 
Now, for some of you, you're just going, that's a lot of money. Well, it was a massive church and he was massively responsible. He's authored about 30, it's probably 30 or 40 books he's authored. You can actually go to his website and he's authored these books and he is determined to give away PDFs. So you can buy his books in the shops or you can get them for free on the internet. Any royalties, he doesn't take any royalties that come from his books, it all just goes straight back into ministry to people and helping people. So he's actually lived really a really lean kind of lifestyle. Anyway, here's, uh, here's what he's got to say. Psalm 63 says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. If you really believe that, if it's gone down to your heart and you can say from the heart, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life, you're going to live a life that looks like it makes God that valuable, more valuable than anything else in life. So it it really has to do with whether your heart is so in love with God that he is more precious than all that life can give. You know, Jesus said more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Unless you renounce everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. One thing you lack, rich man, sell what you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And on and on. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He said more about money than he did about heaven and hell because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So why do we have money? Money is God's idea. What's it for? Here's the reason we have money. We have money to use it in such a way that we show that money is not our God, but God is our God. That's why we have money. Money is given to us to use it in a way to show the world that money is not our treasure, but Christ is our treasure. What this leads to is what I like to call a wartime lifestyle. It's not a simple lifestyle, it's a wartime lifestyle where your whole mindset is, I have resources for one basic glorious purpose, to magnify the worth of God in the world, not to show that I value things more than I value God. Now, you got to understand, Jesus is not into giving you lists and prescriptions. I'm not here to give percentages. That's you and God. I'm here to plead with you to be freed from the American dream and to live the kind of life in the cause of love on the Calvary Road with Jesus, cross on your back, self-denying, such that so full of joy, you will make the world stand up and notice. That's all I want. Whether it's in a suburb that's wealthy or whether you're going to go the city where you will live in a cardboard box to identify with the street people of Calcutta. I can't tell you that, but God can. So I'd ask you, are you owned by money? Or does God own you? 
Does God own everything of yours? Does he own your heart? Number two, she's an unknown lady. You notice here, uh, Jesus is sitting there and even Mark just says it's a, she's a poor widow. There's no name, there's no family, there's a poor widow that's come in. Why is this significant? Well, if you actually go back to the verses immediately preceding it, you know what you actually see? Is you see people that wanted to be known. And so this poor unknown lady comes in in contrast to the scribes. Listen to this. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Do you know uh, it was technically um, against the law, uh, the scribal law, to actually be paid for being a scribe? So scribes, um, they primarily lived on subsidies. It was, it was forbidden for them to charge for their, uh, for their profession. So there's actually an abundance of evidence back then that the scribes were actually part of the lower class, the poorer classes of the day. And uh, it was actually seen in the, um, in the law back then that the extension of hospitality to scribes was actually seen as particularly pious. So what does someone do who can't use money to get status? Well, they put on their fancy pants. You find another way. Like if status is important to you and you don't have money, what do you do? And it's not that much different to us. It's like if you don't have cash and you can't use money to be a fancy pants person, you find another way to be Mr. Fancy Pants. And what are they doing? They're strutting around and they're saying stuff and they're doing stuff and they're wanting to be seen by other people. You see, pride finds a way to elevate itself, doesn't it? But yet this beautiful poor widow, unknown, probably, largely, sneaks in and in one of these 13 receptacles drops in her two pennies. She was uh, the unknown lady. They were the known scribes, weren't they? But you know what? She was known unto God. And you know what? I think this, one of the things this passage teaches us today is this, and hear this well, most great things are small. And most great things are unknown. You go down to the uh, War Memorial in Canberra, there's a, um, a tomb of the unknown soldier. There's a um, place basically where they brought the body of an unknown Australian soldier from uh, Villers Breton area in France, brought it back to Australia and buried it in the... Uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier down there in a coffin. Inscription on the tomb reads, An unknown Australian soldier killed in the war of 1914 to 1918. At the head of the tomb is inscribed, Known unto God. Isn't that beautiful? It's like anyone who's been there. It's a very touching place, a very solemn place. You're standing there and you just think, No one knows whose corpse this is. No one knows their name. But God knows. God knows their name. And do you know... Maybe a lot of people didn't even know this widow. Maybe she didn't put in enough money to be known around the place. Maybe she didn't wear her fancy pants around the place. But do you know what happened there is that Jesus saw her. And do you know what? I reckon if that woman, I don't know whether she found out that Jesus noticed her or not. But do you know, I reckon if, uh, if that woman found out that Jesus, who Jesus was and that he had noticed her, you know what I reckon she would have said? That'll do me. That'll do me. I don't, I don't need anything else. You know, I mean, 
And isn't that the great hope? I'm sure some of you have got this hope within you on Judgment Day. When Jesus comes back and he wraps everything up, you just want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, when he says that to you, you will think, that'll do. That'll do. I don't, I don't need fancy pants people to think well of me. I've got the God of the universe. I've got Christ, he says, well done. He knows me. He knows me. Number three, she was a noticed lady. You see, Jesus notices her. Not only was there's a sense in which she was an unknown lady, but there's a sense in which she is noticed by Jesus. And you know that's one of the most amazing things that you see right through the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the way that God notices people that most people don't notice. I mean, you think about the temple, but there's 35 acres in the temple. There's probably a lot of noise. And here's Jesus able to tune out everything that's going on and notice what's really, really important. It's not the only time you see this from God. In the Old Testament, when uh, Samuel sent to uh, King David's uh, family to find David, basically, to find the new king of Israel after Saul, he, uh, he goes there and uh, he gets to the first son, Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees on the heart. And then you get this procession where the next son comes along and he goes, is this him? And God goes, not him. And he goes through all the sons. I think there were seven sons. And, he, and at the end, if you go to the, uh, the last couple of lines there, Samuel said to Jesse, the father, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. He's not worth worrying about. We've left him out with the sheep and we've brought the best ones to you. And what's God doing? He's noticing the one who's out with the sheep that no one else noticed. Do you get that? It's like a complete reverse of what you're going to expect in this world. It's like be big and notable and noticed. And what's God doing? He's out there, he's going, I'm noticing the unnoticed. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. This is one of my favourite passages in Scripture in Luke 3, verse 1 to 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturinia, Turia, sorry, and Trachonitis, that's what you get just before pneumonia, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Do you see this? It's the who's who. Let me tell you the who's who of anyone who's noticed. What happens next? The word of God came to John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah, where? In the wilderness. <laughs> Find all the people who are noticed. And what's God doing? He doesn't really notice them that much. But he notices John in the wilderness, in um, camel's hair, eating honey and locusts. Some random Jedi knight. <laughs> so what's the point of this? Keep going. Do the slow, small, unnoticed things well because God notices you when you do it. Number four, she was a great lady. That's what she was. What she did was great. You see the italicized bit in the middle there. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. 
You see, Jesus, it's like the zoom lens goes on in on this lady and he says, look, look, this is greatness. What's happening here is greatness. You see, our problem is not that we want to do great things for God. Our problem is the way that we define what great, greatness is. And in our culture, we're kind of taught to sprint, aren't we? We're not taught the marathon of life. We're taught to sprint. You know how our culture uh, defines greatness? It's one way, isn't it? How many plays? How many likes? How many comments? How many rates? You see, our culture's definition of greatness is large, notable, and now. Isn't it? And isn't that in the church? It's large, notable, and now. It's bums on seats. It's fireworks. It's, it's got to be grand. It's got to be now. We had 500 people. We had 300 people gave their lives to Jesus the other night. And there's 50 of them left in a year's time. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like, and not that that's a problem. I think, that's great. I think all of that's great, right? But it actually just shows the way that people talk sometimes is like large, notable, and now. That's what it's got to be. We've got to produce, you know, and, that's, and I feel that pressure and the elders feel that pressure sometimes because that's kind of what's expected of churches. It's meant to be a big whiz-bang thing and it's got to be that in the next 12 months. Well, I'll tell you something. Most things that are great are small, slow and not very well known. You see... What about the person that sits in their room at home and writes an encouraging letter to a missionary? That's great, isn't it? Isn't that great? But no one's going to see it. It's not big. It's not happening fast. We've got to think about this whole thing about greatness, see? You see... We belong to Jesus before we do anything. We're his children. We're sons and daughters of the king. You see, God doesn't hear us because we put so much money in the offering plate. He doesn't hear us because of our skills and giftings. He doesn't hear you or me because of our credentials. He doesn't hear me because I preach up the front of church. I'm his son. You're his son. You're his daughter if you follow him. And somehow in all of this, this poor widow pushes back against this large, notable and now definition of greatness. And I want to say to you this morning, Facebook likes are not greatness. I mean, I am amazed at how much Facebook likes are just like crack cocaine. And it's so addictive to people. It's ridiculous. And I think Jesus would ask you today to follow him and to learn to do small things slowly over a long period of time. You think about things that are great. And do you know 90 to 95% of things that are great fit into this category? You want to have a good marriage? Well, you know what you're going to have to do if you want a good marriage is you're going to have to do Lots of small things. It's going to be a slow process and it needs to happen over a long period of time. 
Mother Teresa in Calcutta. How long was she over there for? About half a century. What has she done? Well, she's got great, but how does she get great? She got great because she did small things slowly over a long period of time. You want to build a good church. How are you going to build a good church? Small things slowly over a long period of time. You want to build good children and disciple good children. If you've got kids, how are you going to have good children? How are you going to make your kids great? By doing small things slowly over a long period of time. Do you get my point? Not big, notable, and now. Small, slow, long, and keep at it. See, this lady's not doing a sprint. Right? She's not doing a sprint. And here's where uh, I want to transition. We're going to have communion soon. Some of you may have noticed this, others may have not. But there's a really interesting contrast in Mark 12. If you go right back to Mark 12, verse 12, the religious leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. What did they want to do? They wanted to take away his life. That's what they wanted to do. Do you notice what the widow did? She gave away her life. Do you see that? They wanted to take his. She gave him hers. She gave God her life. See, she didn't just give what she could. She sacrificed what was necessary. It's what Mark's been saying the whole way along. You know what that is? Everything. Everything. And it's not just a spiritual point for this lady, is it? I mean, she's actually done something. She's actually done something physical with it. This is what Mark's been about. Mark has always been about absolute surrender and total trust in God. Do you know what? Do you know who the lady is like? She's actually like Jesus. See the difference? The religious leaders wanted to take his life. What did he do? Like the woman, he gave his life. You know, you go to Philippians chapter 2. It talks about how Jesus emptied himself of everything and became, and you know another word? Nothing. He gave everything for you. <laughs> and that's why it's so appropriate that we do communion. You, you will never, ever, 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 ever be able to outgive God. Ever. You know, the proverb in uh, Proverbs says, uh, uh, the person who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and the Lord will repay him. It's like, I give, man, I miss out. No, see, that's not how it works. Yeah, am I saying that God's always going to give you financially back? No, I'm not saying that. But you already have far more. If you're a Christian and you trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins, you already have far more than you will ever be able to pay back. And God doesn't even want you to pay it back. That's not the gig. It's like become a Christian and pay God back. Hey, good luck with that. Like you're going to be doing that for the rest of eternity and, and then some. It's probably more like come to me, trust in me. I'll be super generous with you. And then you can just be like me. Just be generous like me. Because you don't own anything that I didn't give you. You don't have anything. 
that God didn't give him. 